sky watchers thanks for listening to our look up podcast i'm patricia and i'm greg and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in august in our cosmic diary when looking at faint objects such as stars nebulae the milky way and other galaxies it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. With new moon occurring on August 1st, darker night skies greet us at the beginning of the month. Use this time to enjoy the splendor of deep sky objects. M13 also known as the Great Globular Cluster in Hercules, is considered by many to be the best globular cluster in the northern sky. Globular clusters are some of the oldest objects in the universe. M13 itself is around 11.5 billion years old. From a dark sky location, you may be able to spot the cluster with the naked eye. But if you do have some light pollution to contend with, a pair of binoculars will reveal a fuzzy object with a bright center. A view of the cluster through a telescope will resolve some of the hundreds of thousands of stars that make up this spectacular cluster. Cygnus the Swan is an easy constellation to spot in the summer night sky because of the five bright stars that form an asterism known as the Northern Cross. You'll find a number of deep sky objects in Cygnus including the open star clusters M29 and M39. Open star clusters typically contain hundreds of stars, many of which are young, hot and blue. Both clusters are excellent targets for binoculars. Below the head of the swan you'll find the constellation Volpecula the Fox, a small constellation that is often overlooked. Hidden inside Volpecula is an open star cluster known as Broca's Cluster, but often referred to as the Coat Hanger Cluster. Have a look at the cluster with a pair of binoculars and you'll see that the brightest stars form an asterism that looks like an upside-down coat hanger. The summer triangle lies overhead during the summer months and is easy to spot even from a light polluted area. Located inside the summer triangle is M27, a planetary nebula also known as the Dumbbell Nebula because its shape resembles its namesake. The nebula is best viewed through a telescope, but those using binoculars should see a fuzzy region on the sky. The Dumbbell Nebula was the first planetary nebula to be discovered and was observed by Charles Messier in 1764. To early observers, these new celestial objects resembled the gas giant planets, and it was English astronomer William Herschel who coined the term planetary nebulae for them. Although planetary nebulae don't have anything to do with planets, they are produced when stars about the mass of our sun reach the end of their lives. The term has stuck to this day. Mercury reaches greatest western elongation on August 9th and will shine brightly in the dawn sky. Look towards the eastern horizon and you'll spot the planet hanging low in the sky. On the evening of the 9th, look towards the south and you'll see the moon close to Jupiter. Joining them in the southern sky is the ringed planet Saturn. As an added treat, the distant ice giants Uranus and Neptune are up in the sky too. Grab a telescope and look towards the southeast to spot Neptune and to the east to spot Uranus. The best time to view the ice giants will be after midnight. Mars and Venus are not visible this month as they are too close to the sun. Venus is at superior conjunction on August 14th and will be behind the sun as viewed from the Earth 
while Mars is busy making its way to superior conjunction. On the evening of August 12th, 13th, sky watchers will be treated to the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Debris left behind by the passage of comet Swift Tuttle through our solar system is responsible for producing this meteor shower. Under optimal viewing conditions, observers would be able to see as many as 100 meteors per hour. Unfortunately, the moon is not in a favorable phase for this year's shower and faint meteors will be washed out by bright moonlight. However, you may be able to spot fireballs, meteors that appear as bright in the sky as Venus. Fireballs are produced by larger particles of comet debris as they collide with the Earth's atmosphere and burn up. The best time to try and spot some meteors is in the early hours of the morning. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast where uh, Patricia and I choose a news story from this month that's broken that we want to tell you more about. And then you get the chance to choose which story is your favourite and vote for them on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. So Patricia, what do you have for us this month? Well, during July and for some time leading up to it, we've obviously been celebrating the Apollo missions. And we've also heard about plans to send astronauts back to the moon. Obviously, NASA announced in their Artemis mission with the goal of getting astronauts back to the moon by 2024. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also talk about sending astronauts out to Mars. And we've also been seeing lots of exciting developments with rocket technology, as well as the new designs for the crew capsules to enable us to get people back to the moon and Mars. And this is all very exciting. Mm -hmm. I get very excited about it. Absolutely. You could tell <laughs> um, when we went down to the moon exhibition and I saw, spotted the Saturn V. Oh, standing yes. In the corner. yes. Um, but of course, it's very exciting, but there is a serious side to space exploration that has to be taken into consideration. And that is the effect of being in space and what that does to the human body. And of course, this is something that all space agencies have to think about when planning these future missions. And one question that they need to figure out an answer to is what happens if there is a medical emergency? And you're in that position where the astronauts can't come back to the Earth. So they're already on their way to the moon and Mars and they're beyond that point of return. So if they need treatment, what are you going to do? Well, the European Space Agency has something in mind that they think can help, which is a practical of practical use, and that is 3D bioprinting, which is, of course, a printing of biological tissues. So <laughs> it, it's, of course, this weird meshing of the European Space Agency and sort of, you know, medical, medical science. Yeah. But to understand how 3D bioprinting could help, we need to talk about the hazards that astronauts obviously face. Yeah. Um, and especially what are, what's so different for those who are going to be on long-term missions to Mars? Well, of course, the human body did not evolve to live in space. It's evolved to live in the gravity that we have here on the Earth. Move a human from the Earth into a weightless environment and strange things start to happen to their body and one of the first things that happens is something that's called puffy head bird legs 
And I'm sure you've already probably got this vision in mind of what this looks like. And it's caused by the movement of fluid within our own bodies because here on the earth, gravity pulls fluid down into your feet and your legs. Hence why at the end of a long day, if you've been standing, you tend to be quite swollen in, mm. in your feet and that. But of course, our bodies have adapted to that and um, it sort of directs the circulation accordingly. We've got all sorts of valves and things that work Precisely, inside. Precisely, it's sort of squeeze everything up, you know, <laughs> back up. So yeah. the pro problem is, is when you're in a weightless environment, your body doesn't know yeah. it's now in a weightless environment. So it continues Keeps to function it. as yep. it should. The problem is that all that fluid that was in your lower part of your body is shoved up. And where does it go? It goes straight up to your head. So that's why astronauts end up with really puffy faces. So if you've ever seen a picture of astronauts on board the ISS, especially if they've just gone into space, it's really puffy. Mm. And because all the fluids come up, your legs get really thin. Yes. So hence the puffy head bird leg um, name for it, which is, I think it's quite an appropriate description, <laughs> description of that. Um, of course, the other thing is when you're in a weightless environment, your, your muscles don't have to work too hard mm. either because they're no longer having to support you against gravity. And um, as an example, the muscles in your neck, they don't have to hold your head up anymore. Ah, uh, yes. As a consequence of all this, astronauts suffer from muscle loss because your muscles are not really needed anymore, if you think about it. And if that wasn't enough, on top of that, your bones demineralize and you lose calcium and strength in space. Now, to reduce this muscle and bone loss, currently astronauts have to exercise somewhere between two to four hours, possibly even more, um, every day. And they are obviously using special equipment that's been designed because you can't really run on a proper treadmill no. on board the ISS. So they have, I think it's called T2, is what they call their... Um, well, it wasn't their Terminator, but yeah, so their treadmill, <laughs> the up treadmill on, yes. um, on the ISS. And obviously you'd think that when astronauts return to the Earth that all those problems kind of disappear and they'll be fine. But that's not quite the case because it turns out that for most astronauts, the minute they return to the Earth, they find it more difficult to readapt being here on the Earth with that gravity than they did adapting to being in yes, a weightless yeah. environment. And due to their weakened muscles and bones, they struggle to walk. And there are a couple of great videos on the internet showing astronauts having to basically learn how to walk again because they haven't been doing it and your muscles, of course, have weakened. And one of the other things that happens is that their hearts basically have to recondition themselves now to pump blood again, being back here on the Earth with um, gravity again. Now, of course, for astronauts on board the ISS, they, you know, they're normally up for a couple of months, sometimes maybe a year, depending on those, those kinds of missions, and we're seeing changes like that. But the difference is, is they're going up, they're coming back down, they can recover here on the Earth. But if you're sending astronauts out to Mars, they're going to spend roughly six months in a sort of weightless environment. And then they're going to be expected to live and work back on a planet that has got gravity. So you've been in this, but the minute you land, you've got to mm. start working. But crucially, of course, one third of the gravity of That's of the Earth, thing. We don't, so we don't really know that. We know quite yeah. a lot about what microgravity does. We know what 1G gravity, yeah. Earth gravity does. We don't know very much about what yeah. mini-gravity does. Exactly, and that's part of why this is all very important for them to figure out how they're going to cope with these things because, okay, Mars one-third, the Moon 
one sec. Yeah. So it, it's going to be very different. And one of the consequences, and I think they've sort of flagged it as a concern, is that because you're going to have that reduction in bone strength, bone fractures are likely to occur mm. because your, your bones have weakened during that course of space travel. And of course, here on the earth, if your bone breaks, you can go to the hospital. Yeah. You can get sorted out. But if you're on Mars and your bone breaks, how would they be able to respond to these kinds of medical emergencies? Now, of course, as I said, returning home is not an option. And there's also a problem in the sense that when they're going to be sending these spacecraft out, they're limited to by how much they can take with. Yes. And you cannot carry enough medical supplies to cover all possibilities. Hmm. This is where 3D bioprinting comes <laughs> into play. And the European Space Agency have actually been working on a project with a focus on 3D bioprinting and how they can use that to help keep astronauts healthy. Um, as part of their project, they recently produced their very first bioprinted skin and bone samples. But importantly, they printed it upside down. Right. Now you might be thinking, okay, why upside down? Well, of course, remember, in space, you're in a weightless environment. Right. So by printing it upside down, they've now demonstrated that you can... It, the orientation doesn't matter. And you can then use it in a weightless environment because yeah. obviously all the 3D printing we're currently doing now, it's yeah. a, you know, a bottom-up approach. This is kind of like the same, but upside down because you can't try and print something in a weightless environment. Bits are just going to yeah. float yeah, yeah, around. Yeah. And, um, but they've also had to make another modification to the bioprinting. Um, the next part, if you're squeamish about medical stuff... Right. Block your ears and maybe t unblock in about three minutes' time and you'll be fine. Okay. Um, so, skin cells can be bioprinted using human blood plasma. Mm -hmm. So, that's how they do it. And here on the Earth, as I said, that's easy enough to do. Um, but because plasma has quite a high fluid consistency, it becomes very difficult to work with in a weightless or low gravity environment. So to be able to make it work, what they did was in partnership with some university researchers, they've developed a modified recipe, so right. to speak, which uses methyl cellulose and alginates to actually increase the viscosity or the thickness of the, what they call bio ink, which Lovely. I think is quite a nice way of describing it. Yeah. And the advantage of these two substances is that astronauts would able be able to obtain that from plants and algae, which they can easily take with an yeah. any spacecraft. So how will that 3D printing actually then keep them healthy? Well, in the case of a bone fracture, which, as I mentioned, is something that they're kind of expecting is going to happen to those astronauts going out. They could simply print out replacement bone and put it in the areas that are broken and encourage the bone to regrow because one of the other things they're not quite sure about and I, I mean they'd have to break someone's arm to test this is how does the body heal itself in a low gravity yes, environment? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Any volunteers? Exactly. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be on top of a mission. Some, sort of it's it's going to have to happen sometime, isn't it? And um, so that's one way. And because the material is bioprinted and comes from the astronaut themselves, it's their own blood, you don't have an issue with transplant rejection hmm. because it's, it's from your own body, so you won't have that issue. In the case of burns, for example, they could just print out a new... Skin skin. Grafts, yeah. And you don't have to grow off because, again, their yes. concern is 
how would an astronaut heal? Yeah. Would it take longer to heal? There's, of course, risks of infections. Mm. Um, their ultimate goal is actually to have 3D bioprinting facilities that could print entire internal organs. Now, this is, of course, is that absolute worst case scenario. If something goes very wrong, someone needs a new kidney, liver, whatever the case is, they would actually be able to print one. And I know this sounds like the realms of science fiction, but we are getting we are there. Getting there. Uh, the other part of the project is, again, looking into the facilities that will be required on board a spacecraft or indeed on board a, uh, inside a camp, either on the moon or on Mars, to assist with medical procedures because you can't pack an entire hospital or unit with. So their idea is that they would have 3D bioprinting as well as standard 3D printing facilities um, because you could print surgery tools, you could print what you need, you could print casts. So if someone breaks an arm, you can custom print a cast for them. And um, again, realm of science fiction, but this is becoming science fact and something that astronauts need. And as I mentioned, I mean, space exploration is really exciting, but it's dangerous. And yeah. the more that we can do to protect astronauts, the better. Mm. And of course, as has been demonstrated before, Developments that have been made for the space program inevitably benefit us, the ones who keep their feet safely on the ground. And if you are curious and want an example of this, and I promise it's not a medically related example, uh, the next time you tuck into a microwavable ready meal, you can thank the crew of Apollo 11. Okay. So that's your random Good. fact for the day. Okay. Well, uh, let's hope that none of the astronauts need to... Uh... Uh, a new kidney anytime soon but still it's good yeah. to hear that before too long hopefully uh, that wouldn't be a problem that won't be a problem no. okay right so f on from uh the very very nearby or at least relatively nearby as things go to some of the most distant objects in the universe which is where i like to to uh to mess around um today i'd like to talk about a concept for a completely new class of star um this class could solve a huge problem that we have in how supermassive black holes form and how they evolve over the course of their lifetimes um uh oh and did i mention they're powered by dark matter no, you did not. No, I didn't mention that, did I? Yes, so these are stars which are not powered in the same way that typical stars are, like our own sun. So an obvious way to start this is to talk about how normal stars work first. So normal stars um, are actually just vast balls of superheated gas, which we call plasma. Um, and these vast clouds of gas, they form from an even bigger cloud of gas, which collapses upon itself under its own weight, its own gravity. Um, and as it crushes down, as the gravity pulls it closer and closer and closer together, um, it heats up rapidly in the centre. Eventually, it reaches the point where the constituent parts of this cloud of gas, which are mostly hydrogen and helium, the hydrogen reaches the point where it can fuse with itself to form helium. This is what we call nuclear fusion, and it's the power for practically every star in the universe. It's what uh, causes all the stars, basically, to shine. And the vast temperature that happens uh, occurs at the, the, the centre of the star, that's what triggers the, the uh, 
um, the, the fusion within the star. Um, but also, once that fusion starts, uh, you've got an outward pressure of the of how hot this gas is trying constantly to expand outwards as a steam uh, expands out of the the um, the spout of your kettle at home it's trying to push outwards gravity is trying to pull it inwards and so you end up with a situation where the star manages to keep itself in the same shape and size for a good long period of time this is what we call the main sequence of a star it's the star's uh, adult lifespan so that's how normal stars run. How are dark stars different, this new class of star? Well, they are mostly the same, in that they are made from hydrogen and helium, which are the elements that were produced in the Big Bang. But one thing that definitely outweighs the stuff that we are used to by a long, long, long way is this material called dark matter. And dark matter is a material that is practically invisible, that is uh, practically undetectable in almost any way, um, but it does one thing very, very well, and that is it has lots of mass, which means it has lots of gravity, and so it pulls things in. Um, it actually outweighs the normal matter, the stuff that we are used to, five to one if we are correct about how the universe is set up. So it's about 5% of the universe's energy is bound up in normal matter. 25% of it is bound up in this dark matter. And then the other 70% is in something called dark energy, which I'm not even going to go near today. It's far too complicated. We'll just stick with the already stupidly complicated dark matter. Um, now, we are not certain that dark matter exists. We think there's a very, very, very good chance that it does. Very good chance, because we can see its effects on other things. We know that there is something missing in our understanding, and we think it's this dark matter. We're also not certain what dark matter is made out of. I've described something called a weakly interacting massive particle, or a WIMP, yeah. um, which is what we think it's made out of. There are other suggestions. There are suggestions that it is made out of stuff which is just difficult to see, so stuff which is dark, stuff which is made out of rock and gas and dust and that sort of stuff that doesn't produce light of its own. You can only really see it when it's lit up by something else. But even our most uh, outlandish attempts to try to, to, to bulk up our numbers of stuff that we're missing has come far, far short of what we need, this five times the amount of normal matter. So we think it's very unlikely that it's normal stuff that's just for some reason hidden. So weakly interacting massive particles seem to be the way to go. One interesting thing about weakly interacting massive particles is, yes, they are practically invisible, so they don't uh, interact with light very easily. Um, they are practically undetectable in all other ways because they don't interact with things. But because they are relatively massive, they do have a lot of gravity, and so they would be able to be a potential dark matter candidate. Um, this dark matter, if we're correct, is practically everywhere in the universe, but it is mostly clumped up in certain places. These clumps are surrounding galaxies and galaxy clusters, but in fact, the clumps were there first. So the clumps existed pulled in the normal matter, which then forms the galaxies and clusters of galaxies that we now see today. In the universe that we're in today, dark matter is relatively spread out. 
Uh, everything is relatively spread out. Yes, we have clumps of stuff which make up the galaxies, but then there are massive voids between them. The same is true for dark matter. You get clumps of dark matter and then relative dark matter voids. But early on in the universe, there was still roughly the same amount of matter. There was the same amount of dark matter. But it was all in a much, much smaller universe. So it was all clumped up pretty close together. The suggestion is that at that time it was dense enough for dark matter to form what we call compact objects. So objects which are clumpier, smaller, um, that make up a much smaller uh, object. So these would thing, be things like stars and planets and that sort of thing. That, those are types of compact objects. Now we're not suggesting necessarily that dark matter can form planets Dark matter is, it, it wouldn't necessarily be able to clump down enough to make a solid object. And even if it could, it wouldn't be solid in the way that we think of it because it doesn't interact very well. Yeah. And so because it can pass through itself, it's always, ever, always going to end up looking more like a gas than anything else. But what it could do potentially is form stars. Now, as I said, the vast majority of these dark stars are still hydrogen and helium, exactly the same stuff. In fact, 99.9% .9 of these stars would be made out of hydrogen and helium, perfectly normal. But about 0.1% potentially might be made of this dark matter substance. That doesn't sound like a lot. And yet, it's the dark matter that would power the thing. The reason being, these stars would be dense enough so that the dark matter, which rarely interacts with itself, doesn't very often, but does occasionally interact with itself, certain uh, weakly interacting massive particles, when they interact, they self-annihilate. So when you get uh, a bit of matter and a bit of antimatter together, and you smash them into one another, they annihilate each other, they wipe themselves out and they convert their entire mass into energy. This is where Einstein's famous E equals mc squared equation comes from, that the, the mass of these objects can be turned entirely into energy, produces a large amount. Um, the idea is that dark matter potentially does this to itself. So if it ever comes across another particle of dark matter and has a small probability of actually colliding with that thing, then when it does so, it will annihilate and produce a vast amount of energy. Because remember, these are massive particles, yeah. a lot of energy inside these things. So, potentially, they could power these stars. The reason why hydrogen and helium won't be the things which power it are because, well, the stars are too big. And I mean really, really big. They never get hot enough in the centre for fusion to begin. They manage to sustain themselves due to a much wider core of this dark matter interacting with itself. So unlike their name implies, dark stars, these things are in fact extremely bright, as in amongst the brightest single objects in the universe sort of thing. They would be absolutely huge, potentially about 10 astronomical units across. Wow, that's big. Now, one astronomical unit is the distance from the sun to the Earth, which is 150 million kilometres. The sun itself is only 1 million kilometres across. So these things are 1,500 times bigger. So if the sun were replaced with a dark star, it would swallow Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, and would give Jupiter a go. 
because it's just about five times the distance from the sun as the Earth is. So it would try to swallow Jupiter as well. Might even succeed. They also get up to a billion times brighter than the sun. So for the record, the largest supergiant normal stars are maybe 100,000 times brighter than the sun. So these things are extraordinarily bright as well. These stars are also not ridiculously hot. While the hottest supergiant stars get up to about 20 to 50,000 times the, uh, sorry, 20 to 50,000 Celsius, um, these were a bit more modest at about 10,000 Celsius, which is about twice as hot as the sun. So still very, very hot on the outside. Yeah. We're not talking core temperatures yeah. here, but on the outside of the star. Um, but that does mean that they would be odd because they would be extraordinarily bright and yet relatively cold. Yeah. So that would be one of the ways of identifying these as a different object to anything we've seen before. So I mentioned earlier their the connection to supermassive black holes. Yeah. Why? Why are they connected? Well, it's one of the outstanding questions about supermassive black holes. How did they form? Um, we know that there are supermassive black holes out there at 10 to the 10 times the mass of the sun. That's 10 billion times more massive than the sun is. But we also know that supermassive black holes grow in a very specific way. They can either swallow other black holes, which is limited by how many black holes there are around you and how big those black holes are, or they can swallow gas and other material. But that's limited by how much energy doing that produces. Because if you produce lots of energy, then it puffs out, it tries to push that material away so it self-regulates how quickly a supermassive black hole can grow. If you take a relatively standard black hole, a few thousand times the mass of the sun, stick it right at the beginning of the universe and allow it to grow at its absolute maximum rate for the entirety of the length of the universe, you won't get close to 10 to the 10 solar masses. So you need a really big black hole at the beginning. Guess what could produce that? I'm going to say a dark star. <laughs> a dark star, absolutely. These things could grow to be absolutely vast, a million times the mass of the sun. When they run out of fuel, uh, the whole thing is going to collapse in upon itself and form a black hole straight away, containing the vast majority of a million times the mass of the sun grow that for 14 billion years 10 to the 10 no problem so that is potentially the way to do it to solve this supermassive black hole problem to solve how these uh, black holes form how they evolve over the course of their lives to solve many many different problems that we have yeah. um, all with one admittedly very theoretical class yeah. of star. The issue, of course, is we've never found any of these things, which is not surprising. As I say, yeah. they're theoretical. We don't even yeah. know that dark matter exists, let well, alone I was just about to stars. say, and I think that's something to, to point out as well, is that there are active searches, there are projects happening to try to understand what dark matter is. Because, yep. as you said, we know it's there. We can't see it, but we can see its presence there. And I yep. think that's part of the challenge, and hence the whole dark association is because astronomers like to see that what we're studying that and, and that'd be nice <laughs> and this is we know something's there and if we could figure out what it was what it is i mean that 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 would be that next big step yeah. in sort of physics and astronomy is figuring out what it is that would just be yeah 
amazing. Anyway, perhaps it's not surprising that we haven't found any of them. They could only form in the very earliest part of the universe, and they might only last for a few million years. So, potentially, they've long since been wiped out by the time we can look back to at the moment. However, the James Webb Space Telescope should have the ability to be able to see these things. Now, James Webb is not designed to produce surveys as such. It's designed to look at one object very specifically. So whether James Webb can be effectively used to find these things in the first place, it's difficult to tell. But maybe if we find some very, very early galaxies, point James Webb in the direction, maybe, maybe we'll be able to see something. Fingers crossed. That would be, again, an astonishing result if we could find something like that. Again, all the more reason to get very excited about the James Webb Space Telescope. Absolutely. Which will launch very soon, so we're told. <laughs> so that's it for our cosmic news this month. Uh, two news stories for you to be able to choose between and vote on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. Last month, we had the choice between cold quasars, a type of galaxy which might be the intermediary between a galaxy with an active supermassive black hole and a dead galaxy no longer producing any stars. And we had Patricia talking about the Saturn V rocket, the rocket that launched the Apollo missions to the moon and back. So, with 77% of the vote, Patricia's story won again this month. Congratulations. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our podcast this month and hope you join us for next month for more from Look Up. Mm-hmm.